Masechet Ketubot, Daf Nun Bet. Today we're going to be talking about the obligation of a husband to redeem his wife if she's captured and to also to pay for her healing. Oh, we saw that there's a basic obligation for a man. It's written in the Ketubah to redeem his wife. There is a difference between whether he's a Yisrael or a Kohen. If he's Yisrael, it says that I promise to redeem you and bring you back as a wife. Since uh, she was violated unwillingly by force, Therefore, a Yisrael is permitted to take her back. Whereas, if he is a Kohen, then the language of the Ketubah does not say that because the Kohen is prohibited to her, even though she was unwilling. And so it says he obligates himself, the Kohen obligates himself to redeem her, and then she will go and live uh, wherever she, she lives, uh, elsewhere, and they will no longer be married. All right, that's the two cases. Mishnah also mentioned that if a wife gets captured and the man says, I don't want to redeem her, I want to divorce her now, and I'll pay her ketubah, she can redeem herself from the amount of the ketubah. That is not okay. Uh, he has to first redeem her. He saved up that money from Perot. And then afterwards, if he wants to divorce, that's a separate story. All right, now we're going to discuss cases where there is a prohibition within the marriage. And so there will be a problem for them to go back and live together. And uh, therefore, that clause in the marriage for Yisrael that says that I will take you back uh, cannot be fulfilled. We have Machloket. Amar Abaye. If an almana is married to a Kohen Gadol, it is a prohibited marriage and they're not supposed to stay together. Although the marriage is chal, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, they, are, they are halachically married, but it's prohibited. And if she gets captured, the Kohen Gadol husband has to redeem her because I can fulfill the technical words of the Ketubah that says, regarding Kohen, he's Kohen Gadol, so obviously he's going to use this language, I will return you to your city, wherever you live. And so when he redeems her, then they will divorce and she will return to a city. So she is obligated uh, according to that, those, that language of the stipulation in the Ketubah. However, if the man is Israel and he's married to someone he's prohibited to, like a mamzeret or a netina, he does not have to redeem her if she gets captured. Because he cannot fulfill the clause that is written for a Yisrael, which, which says that I will return you to me as a wife. He is not permitted to return mamzeret and netina to himself as a wife, and therefore the stipulation does not apply to him. He doesn't have to redeem her. That's Abaye's opinion. Rava, however, says, no, he, a, man, a man only has to redeem his wife if the prohibition because of her captivity is what will cause her to be prohibited. So, therefore, uh, in the case of a Kohen who is married to someone who he's permitted to marry, and then she gets captured, she becomes prohibited because of the captivity. Only in that case does he have to prohibit her, uh, does he have to redeem her. But, But if it's a different reason, like the Kohen Gadol married to an Almana, uh, in that case he, it's, uh, he does not have to. Uh, redeem her because it's not the captivity that's making her prohibited. She was already prohibited to him. So in any law, any case 
where the man is prohibited, it doesn't matter if he's, he's Israel and cannot return her, her, her to him, or if he's a Kohen, where the language says you're going to go to your city, nevertheless, if it's a prohibited marriage, he does not have to redeem her. So we see that Rava is more lenient on the this uh, more lenient on the Kohen Gadol. He does not have to redeem her. All right, very interesting machloket. Uh, 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 We're going to try to see if the Rava and Abaye match up with two Tanaim Le which would we'd, we'd rather not do because uh, every Amora uh, ideally would be able to explain himself according to both Tanaim which is what we're ultimately going to say. But, Someone who, um, who, who makes a vow that he will not derive any benefit from his wife. Now, um, that he makes a vow, rather, that his wife may not derive any benefit from him. Right? I'm not going to give you anything. They enter a fight or something. Now, a man is not allowed to do this. And if he does, he has to divorce his wife and pay her a ketubah. Because this is not a marriage if, uh, if she cannot derive benefit from him. So now they are prohibited when he makes that vow. They are, this is a prohibited marriage. He has to divorce her. And then she gets uh, captured. So this is a similar case in that it's a prohibited marriage, um, but uh, there's an obligation to pay the ransom. Rabbi says, you have to redeem her and then you pay the ketubah when she comes back. Rabbi Yoshua says, no, just give her a ketubah because they can't be together anyway. And it's a prohibited marriage, so therefore he does not have to redeem. Uh, so let's see how this matches up. Uh, first, we're going to finish the uh, reading the whole baraita. Yeshua's opinion that he does not have to pay, redeem her. What case is it exactly? Is talking about a case where first the man made a vow and said, uh, "You can have no benefit from me." And then she was captured, so that the prohibited the prohibition of the marriage, his obligation to divorce her came first. Or is it where she first got captured, and then he said, "I vow, I'm not going to give my wife anything." He says, "Actually, I did not hear a tradition about this, but I can figure it out." It makes sense that the vow he made the vow first, and only then. Did she get captured? Because if you say she got captured first and then he made a vow, and according to the Biyoshua, he doesn't have to redeem her, well then, a person will use this subterfuge, a man could do that all the time. Anytime his wife gets captured, and now he's going to pay this big amount of money, he'll say, I vow I, I will not give anything to my wife. And then he will have no obligation to redeem his wife, and that would be preposterous. Then he could get out of his basic ketubah obligation at every, uh, all the time. So therefore, it must be talking about a case where first he made the vow, he got, they got into a fight or something, and then she got captured, since he already made the vow not to give him anything, so she ha he has to divorce her. So in that case, he can divorce her and does not have to pay. Now, my love, so what case exactly are we talking about? Let's assume, try to assume, that this baraita is limited to a case where the man is a kohen. And this kohen is, um, is uh, making a vow not to give anything to his wife. The benefit, or the reason why we're saying it's a kohen is that if it's a Yisrael uh, saying it, 
well then, according to all opinions, he would not be able to fulfill his stipulation because he cannot return her to him. And in the Kitubah of Yisrael, it says, I'll redeem you and you'll be my wife again, but it can't be my wife again. So if, it, if the guy is Yisrael, then according to both Abaye and Rava, he would not have to redeem her. So it must be that this is, well, we're trying to say that this is talking about a Kohen. Abaye says, like Rabbi Eliezer, that he has to redeem her because he still can fulfill the technical language of the Ketubah that says, I will redeem you and then you will live in your city. So even though he made a vow, and he's, he's there, they can't stay together. Nevertheless, he redeems her, and they, he still fulfills the stipulation. She will go into to her city. Whereas Rabbi Yoshua says he does not have an obligation. That would be the same as Rava, who said, um, as long as there is a prohibition that's besides the prohibition caused by her being violated, uh, that, and any other prohibition, and the being uh, this vow is a prohibition from them staying together. Uh, in any case of such a prohibition, he does not have to pay. So you see, it actually could match up as long as we limit it to that case. Um, but we, uh, but not, this is not necessarily so. Uh, first, we're going, we're going to try to reject this lining up of the two Tanaim with two Amoraim. In one way, we're going to reject that way, but then we're going to uh, reject it in another way that will be successful. And Abay and Ava can explain themselves according to both uh, Tanaim. So we say, No, maybe this Baraita is talking about a case where she is the one that made a vow, and she says, I will not take, make, get any benefit from you. She's the one that gets angry at him and makes a vow. Rebbe uh, says, even though she made the vow, the law is that a husband has permission to nullify the vow when he hears it on that day. Since he did not annul the vow and he let it keep going, he is the one that's responsible for the breakdown of the marriage. Uh, Talmud uses an uh, expression, he puts his finger between his teeth. Um, it means something like, uh, you know, you, you bite your thumb at me is the old expression. Uh, it means a, a curse or a vow. This must have been some, some kind of gesture that was made when someone makes a vow. The point is that he is the one responsible, even though she made the vow, nevertheless, he's responsible because he could have annulled it and didn't. Since he is responsible for the breakdown of the marriage, uh, therefore, he does have to pay, and he has to, he has to redeem her. That's Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Yoshua says, no, he not na She's the one that put her finger between her teeth. She's responsible for the vow. So since she said that she doesn't want to derive any benefit, so the man is off the hook. Uh, you, 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 you made a vow, then you got captured, so that's your problem. Um, I, I, I don't have to redeem you. Uh, okay. Uh, so e, uh, so that's what we try to say, and that way uh, the machloket is independent, has nothing to do with Abayin Rava. But we say, hold on, he natana mai If she's the one that caused the breakdown of the marriage, then why does he have to pay a ketubah, right? If she is at fault for ruining the marriage, then he's not responsible. He's only responsible for to pay the ketubah if he's the one that made the vow. So this would not make sense according to the Yoshua, what that he pays the vow, that he pays the kitubah. And furthermore, the continuation of the conversation in the Braita also would not make sense. 
רבי יהושע נותן לה כתובתה ואינו פודה כשדרה לבסוף נשבת או בנשבת לבסוף דירה ואמר לי לא שמעתי. When רבי נתן אס צומחוס recording to רבי יהושע who says that you have to pay the that he does not have to redeem her but he does have to pay the kitubah is it talking about when the vow came first and then captured or captured first and then the vow when he said he didn't know well what would be the the question if she do, if she's the one that's responsible and she made the vow then it doesn't make a difference the order because either way we can't say that oh he can use it as Sumchos' answer was it must be that he made the vow first and then she got captured otherwise a man could always use a subterfuge anytime his wife gets captured he'll just make a vow um, but if she's the one that made a vow then we have no worry that it's going to be used as a uh, subterfuge this whole this whole question and the answer would not make any sense. So therefore, uh, we are abandoning this line of interpretation that she's the one that made the vow. He made the vow as we originally thought. And in fact, Abayah could explain himself according to both opinions and Abayah also according to both Tanaim. If it's Almana to Engadol, where uh, he can fulfill the technical law, uh, words of the Ketubah, yes, he has to redeem her. Whereas if he is a Israel and his, his marriage is prohibited, he cannot fulfill the words of the Ketubah that says, you, I will return you to me as a wife. And therefore, he does not have to redeem her. And everyone would agree, both Tanaim would agree. And if it was a case where Kohen uh, is the one that made the vow and said, I will not have uh, give any benefit to you, then also everyone agrees that he has to redeem her. Because in that case, since he's a Kohen and he wrote the language of the Ketubah that I will redeem you and you will live in your city, he can still fulfill that up that that clause uh, because even though he made a vow, he can redeem her and then he will divorce her and she will live in that city. So he so he promised, he agreed to such a case. It's equivalent to Gadol. But the machloket would be in the one case of a Yisrael who made a vow. Interestingly, even though Kohen who makes a vow has to redeem, a Yisrael who made a vow does not have to redeem because in his Ketubah, he writes, I will redeem you and return you unto me as a wife, and Yisrael can't do that. So, but this in this case, that would be the subject of the key point of the Machloket between the Tanaim. Rebeli would say, that he does have to make he does have to redeem her Eve in this case because we follow the obligation as it was made originally when he wrote the Ketubah when they were first married it was a permitted permitted marriage there was nothing wrong with the marriage and he said I will redeem you and return you to me as a wife subsequently they got into a fight and he made this vow and so now he can no longer do that obligation but nevertheless he obligated himself before he made the vow so that obligation remains in effect even after the vow so he does have to pay but Rabbi Yoshua says we're going to look at it at the end now that she is currently taken captive after the vow 
Can he fulfill this stipulation? He cannot because he can't take her, take her back as a wife. And that, therefore, is a subject of machoket. They would all agree in the case where she's a mamzeret, in that case, from the beginning, it was prohibited and there was no way of making the stipulation. In that case, Rabbi Eliezer would, say, would agree that he does not ransom. Um, okay, good. So that's how Abaye could explain it. Rava remember was the one that said that he has to uh, he only has to redeem um, a man only has to redeem his wife if the prohibition of the marriage is because of her captivity. So because she was violated, the Kohen couldn't. But if there's any other prohibition, he does not have to redeem her. Uh, even even al Kohen Gadol, even though she's going to a different uh, a city, that, no, it's a prohibited marriage, so he doesn't have to redeem her. Rather, the Machloket would be either a Kohen or Yisrael, who make a stipulate? Who make a vow? And it would apply to both of them. Rabbi Eliezer Azel Batar Imeikara, Rabbi Yeshua Azel Batar Basof. In both of these cases, where the marriages were in the beginning fine marriages, there's nothing wrong. He was allowed to be with them. He was allowed to be with them. Um, uh, but he made the vow subsequently, and again here, Rabbi Eliezer says, well, follow the original time of the Kitubah, when these were permitted marriages, and so therefore he has to redeem her, whereas according to Rabbi Yoshua, at this point, at the end, uh, now that she, he made the vow and she's captured, there is a prohibition against the marriage, and according to Rabbi, anytime there is a prohibition about the marriage, he does not have to. He does not have to redeem her. And so again, Ravah is more is more lenient than Abaye. Uh, but we see that uh, both Ravah and Abaye can explain their shitot according to both of the Tanaim. All right, now we get to Nishbet Chayav Liftota. Woman is taken captive. He is obligated to redeem her. What if a wife is captured while her husband is alive, but then in the meantime, before he's able to redeem her, he dies. And so the inheritance goes to his sons. Uh, do his sons have an obligation? That's not a basic obligation of the sons. So what do we do in this case? If the husband, before he died, knew about the captivity, so then that means that in his mind he already decided, okay, my assets are going to have to be uh, given over as a guarantee to pay for the ransom. So since already he knew about it, already in his mind, he is giving the money, so it's already indebted and the sons will have to redeem her. But if this father, even though he was alive at the time, but he didn't know about it, uh, and he died, so then the money never was subjugated to pay for this. It's a basic obligation of the ketubah while the man is alive. But after he's dead, the, the, the estate does not have to pay for uh, her to be redeemed. I'm guessing if it's their mother, then they may want to do that, but it's up to them. It may be their stepmother, and maybe they don't want to. Levi wanted to follow this uh, halacha uh, with the man who knew about it, and then he died, and then he wanted so that he would extract money from the inheritance to pay for her uh, ransom. Rav said that my beloved one, he's talking about his uncle, Rabbi Chia, the word dod also means beloved, so that's what he called him. 
Um, Ela ki haditanya, the Allah does not follow that baraita, but rather the following baraita nishbeta kharmitat baala. And a yatimun khabin liftota. If someone is captured and then he dies, uh, no, if he dies first and then she's captured, the uh, the inheritors are not the sons are not obligated. Uh, that's if he um, if he dies first. But not only that, even if she is captured when the husband is alive, and then he dies. They do not have to redeem her. The reason is because the clause in the Ketubah only says, I will redeem you and return you as my wife. But now he's dead at the time of trying to ransom her. And therefore, since she cannot go back to him as a wife, therefore, uh, there is no obligation. And it makes no difference whether he knew about it or didn't know about it. And so he says, we follow this as a halakha. And therefore, you cannot force the sons to uh, redeem the, uh, to redeem her. Let's say someone's captured and the captors are demanding ten times of her value, uh, more than either what's on the slave market or more than the usual what uh, kidnappers usually uh, uh, extract for such a person. They want ten times as much. Is he obligated to pay that much? The answer is, the first time, yes. But after that, if he wants to, he can spend money and redeem her, but he's not legally obligated by the Ketubah to keep overpaying this amount. This, uh, it would be unlimited. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer, However, Rabbi Rashbag says that no, even the first time a man is not obligated, uh, actually one should not pay the captives more than the value because of tikkun aulam, the betterment of the world. This is a really important principle that we don't want to set a precedent of overpaying because when you do that, then that'll entice more kidnappers to kidnap more people and demand more money. And it'll just go on and on and it'll make the whole thing worse. So by limiting and say, no, we're not, we're all just, we have a limit to what we were we are willing to pay, then it may not be worth it for kidnappers because they know they're not going to get so much money and they won't have to add, they won't ask for exorbitant sums so we keep it as a compromise so you only kidnap a few people and uh, and 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 keep it keep it keep it uh, 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 at a price that people can afford. Uh, okay, so that's has been. Even though in one particular case it might not be good for this person who will have a hard time getting his wife back, uh, but uh, for the betterment of everyone else, uh, this is nowadays uh, uh, happens all the time uh, when someone is captured by a foreign government and uh, the United States or whatever government has to decide if they're going to uh, pay or trade prisoners and at what price and what kind of precedent that will send in Israel also. So very deep and complicated issues. And here you see the rabbis are already uh, struggling with these moral dilemmas a long time ago. What we see from uh, from this, Baraita, is that 
we pay according to her normal price that you have to he has to pay even if the normal price is more than the marriage kit the the marriage contract if she's a betula the 200 zoos if on the normal market market value is 300 zoos or even, uh, he would still have to pay it even according to Rashbag. But we have a problem. What do you mean? We have a contradictory baraita that says nishpet ve'umbakshimenu ad asara b'ktubata pam risha rishona podeh mikan ve'lech lasa podeh lasa eno podeh tanakama is the same thing. They're asking for ten times. You have to pay that. Husband has to pay that once, but that's it. After that, he doesn't have to pay uh, pay more than her value. The Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Omer im hayapirkona keneged ketubada podeh vim lav eno podeh. Rashi Gavarva says there's an upper limit, but in this paraita, he says the upper limit is not the normal her regular value, but rather the upper limit is. Her ketubah, which means if he's there demanding 300, but the ketubah says that he has to pay only 200, he says that he doesn't have to redeem her uh, unless, uh, unless the, the, the value, the, the amount that they're demanding is less than the 200. So now we have a contradiction because according to the first paraita, it sounds like he has to pay the market value, even if it's more than the 200. And according to this, he only has to pay up to the amount of the ketubah. In this, in my example is two hundred. So, what do we? How do we reconcile these? In fact, Lashbag accepts both of these leniencies. It's a leniency to him. I mean, not such a leniency to her, who may she may remain captured, but a leniency to him that he pays the lower amount of either the market value or the ketubah value. He doesn't have to pay any more than either of those in any case. We now move to the husband's obligation in the Ketubah to pay for his wife's medical benefits. So now we're talking about not while the wife is alive, where, yeah, the husband has to pay for all of her medical expenses, but now the husband died. What is the obligation of the inherit inheritance to pay for the widow. So the law is uh, an almana can does get fed from the uh, inheritance of the orphans. And if she needs medical attention, that is the same as that's included under sustenance. So yes, they are obligated. However, Rashbag says it depends what kind of medical treatment it is. If it's something that has a set amount, it's a you know, one-time procedure, someone uh, broke her arm and she needs a cast, it costs $1,000. In that case, if it's a set amount, she has to pay it from her own money from the amount that uh, from the amount of the kitubah. The inheritance, of course, has to pay out her kitubah. It's one lump sum. And so she will take deduct from that amount the one time a medical expense. Shein la kitzbah, but if it's something that's a chronic disease that she's going to need uh, medication uh, every day for a long term, uh, or she's going to have to keep coming back for doctor visits, then that is like sustenance. And therefore, the orphans have to pay for that from the inheritance and not from the kitubah. So it's better 
for her if it's uh, billed as something that is continuous because then the orphans pay for it. It's better for the orphans if it's billed as a one-time uh, expense because then it's deducted from the amount of the ketubah. So kind of like today with medical insurance, sometimes if you bill it one way, they don't pay. If you bill it a different way, then they do pay. Bloodletting was a general thing that was done. It was done to prevent uh, not, not only if someone was sick, but also on some regular basis uh, so that people would remain healthy. That's what they thought. So they considered this in Eretz Israel like a treatment that does not have a fixed cost uh, because you do it, uh, people would do it on a regular basis and therefore it was part of regular sustenance that the orphans had to pay for. The relatives of Rabbi Yochanan had a stepmother who required medical attention every single day. So since it's chronic, uh, the orphans had to pay for it. And so the orphans came to Rabbi Yochanan. He gave them some legal advice and said, go to the doctor and get a one fixed sum for all of the treatment for the whole disease even though she's going to have to go back to him and get medical treatment every single day don't pay every day ask the doctor for one lump sum a hundred thousand dollars for the entire thing and once you do that then it'll bill be billed to her ketubah and she will be deducted from that she will have to pay for it and you guys your the orphans will not have to so now you see the Hanan is giving advice to his relatives uh, the orphans uh, against this stepmother uh, who he's not related to, and so he's helping them out. After Biochanan gave that advice, he says, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I regret it. Well, look, we made ourselves, meaning he made himself like a lawyer, like a legal advisor. Uh, we learn in Mishnah, Do not make yourself like a lawyer. In rabbinic courts, lawyers are not allowed. Rather, the judges, they are objective and they want to hear from the litigants themselves and so one is one should not insert himself and give the one of the litigants a loophole here's a you can get around it say this don't say that that is a problem it's a, a, a obstruction of justice and Rabbi Yochanan said I should not have done that so now the Gemara asks me what didn't he know that before what was he thinking when he first gave them advice and how come he changed his mind at first he said he quoted the Pasuk in Yeshaya that said do not hide yourself from your own flesh and blood these are my relatives so there's a special mitzvah to go and help your relatives and how he can help his orphan relatives uh, with uh, a chronic expense that they will have. But after he thought about it, he says, I'm an important person. Rabbi Yochanan is the, the leading sage of the whole generation. And so he has to be stand above that. And uh, he has to be objective. He is the, the leading teacher, judge, uh, for sage for everyone. And therefore he cannot be even seen, even if it's technically legally correct, 
he, he should not be, uh, he has to recuse himself and not be giving advice, uh, one-sided advice to any of his relatives. All right, fascinating. And now we get to the next Mishnah. Now we're going to get into some of the typical lang- normal language that was in the Ketubot uh, in the times of the Mishnah. And this is one as the, the line for Benin Dichrin, Ketubat Benin Dichrin, that says, Male children, uh, that he writes in the Ketubah, any male children that I will have with you, that we will have from this marriage, this, from this man and this woman, because um, they will inherit the money of your Ketubah, so that if he dies first, she gets the Ketubah. Um, uh, even, uh, uh, and if she dies first, then the man still has to pay the, pay the Ketubah to her sons, even if he has other sons from other marriages. And so all, in that case, all the sons will split the inheritance equally. That's true. But she wants to make sure that the money that's owed her for the ketubah, even though she dies first, will go to her son specifically. So that when, um, when the man dies, she dies first, then he dies. When he dies, then the, the payment first goes to, to pay the ketubah to those sons, of her, and only after that's deducted, then they split the rest of it. Uh, so they, they get the ketubah, the sons of this marriage get the ketubah, above and beyond the share of all of the inheritance with the other brothers. Uh, so even if you don't write that in the ketubah, he still has to pay it, because that's a stipulation of the court. Um, we people get married, Kedat Moshe, Israel, according to Law Moses and Israel, and therefore they are including, uh, even if they don't write it, these stipulations. Now, the next one is Benan Nukvan, for daughters of that marriage, the Yevan Lichiminai, that you will have with me, Yevyan, Yatvan, Bebeti, Mitzananan, Mitzenan, Menechasai, Adetilak Hun, Legubrin. Even after the man dies, the, uh, the inheritance has to pay for the as long as they these daughters live in my house the man is saying meaning until they get married if they get married and move out of the house then their husbands have to take care of them but if they're minors and they're living in the house then they will be sustained from my property until they are taken by men to and in marriage so even if he skips that that provision to sustain that the um, uh, that his property will have to sustain his daughters, even if he doesn't write it, chayav. Still, the property does, an inheritance does have to pay for them. Okay, so um, the wife wants to make sure her sons are taken care of, her daughters are taken care of. And finally, And now, she herself also wants to be taken care of after he dies. We want to make sure that the inherited property will pay for her sustenance as long as she lives in the house. If she gets remarried, then her new husband will take care of her. Even if he doesn't write it, And the people in Jerusalem used to write the, that language. Also in the Galilee, they would write the same way they wrote in Jerusalem. But the people in Judea, Jerusalem is in Judea, but Jerusalem was different. Uh, the other cities around in the south, 
of Israel would write a different language. They would say that the uh, property of the father that the sons inherit has to they have to pay for the sustenance of their of the father's wife until they the inheritors decide to pay out the ketubah so they can choose if they, they can continue to sustain her uh, while she's in the house while she's there while she's not married uh, for a long term or they can pay out the amount of a ketubah in one lump sum, give it to her, and then she's on her own and she will sustain herself from the ketubah. So in, the, in Judea, that's what they would write. Therefore, since that's the way it's written, that's, that, that's what they can do. And if, the, uh, if, they, if they want to uh, simply write that for, uh, um, uh, simply give her a ketubah in one lump sum, then that's it. They don't have to pay for uh, her sustenance. So they can make that, uh, the, the ketubah was a significant amount. They might, have to, they might have to sell land and all that in order to pay the ketubah. So maybe it would be better for them to keep that land and let things grow on it and pay, um, pay gradually rather than all at once. So Rabbi Yochanan says, What's the reason that the rabbis instituted that one must write in the Ketubah? And if he doesn't say it, he still has to give the sons, pay, pay the sons the amount of the Ketubah if their mother died first. The reason is so that a father of a, of a bride will want to jump up and write uh, for his daughter a dowry that will be as big as a portion that his son would get as an inheritance. In other words, if a father of a bride um, uh, is there, he wants his, bride, his wants his daughter to get married. Now, if he knows that I'm going to give money into the marriage, if he thinks that should his daughter die, then this husband is going to take all that money and inherit it, and then he, when he dies, it will be split among his all of his other sons. So then, a father is not going to be willing to give a lot of a lot of money because it's going to be split up to people he's not related to. But if you write the stipulation, if you have the stipulation in there, then the father of the bride knows that even if his daughter dies before him, nevertheless, the money that he's giving into the marriage, which is included in the ketubah, will go to his grandsons. So then he'd be willing to give a large dowry, and that will help his, uh, his daughter uh, get married. And so that will be a benefit. So um, by keeping, by requiring the husband to keep that dowry amount and the whole all the ketubah in the in in the family the sons of that marriage that will encourage the father to give more and that will help everyone okay hold on can you do something against the torah uh god hashem in the torah says that sons inherit and daughters do not inherit and now the rabbis are coming and making a decree and although it kind of works through a ketubah so it's not that the daughter is inheriting but effectively this uh this money 
that uh, the husband that is that, that the, the wife brought into the marriage as a dowry is going to be basically inherited by the wife's sons uh, but she is not someone that inherits and so she now this this daughter who's the, the bride is going to get as much as kibno right as much as the her brothers would get uh, effectively because it will go to her, it'll go to her sons. And so is this right that a daughter should get as much as sons when the Torah says it should only go to sons? How can the rabbis make an enactment that would go against the Torah? And the answer is, In fact, we can find a biblical source for this rabbinic enactment as well. Although it's not in the Torah itself, it's in Navi. When Yirmiya is telling uh, B'nai Israel, listen, you're going to go into exile, but don't despair. When you're in exile, go and marry off your sons and daughters and have families and live, uh, continue, con- continue to live because you're going to come back to Israel. So, but his language formulation is very specific. Uh, take wives for yourselves. Uh, you, you're the men he's talking to, and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands. Make sure you marry off your kids. Now, Bishlam Abanim Bidekaime. It makes sense that he says, take wives for your, for your sons, because the boy side is proactive. They're the ones that are, he's going to uh, uh, ask out girls on dates. The father of the groom is the one that's going to initiate and, said, you know, and, and say, you know, we'd like to, to have your daughter in marriage. So it makes sense that they can arrange that. But for daughters, is it in their uh, power to go and just marry themselves off? The, the husband has, and his family have to initiate. So how can this be fulfilled? Rather, it means that a father should dress and cover and give uh, 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 gifts, property, jewelry, whatever it is, to uh, so, uh, to make his daughter uh, attractive. Uh, not only physically attractive, but also financially, so that the um, the the boys, the men, will come and jump uh, to try to marry her. So yes, even though they're not initiating the marriage, uh, the the the, uh, the the dates and the marriages, nevertheless, there's a lot that the 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 bride and her family can do to make sure that she will get married. So you see, this is giving a biblical source for the idea that a dowry should be large. And since we want to encourage fathers to give a large dowry to their daughters, so the rabbis fulfilled this by making a takana. This is, don't worry, if you give your, your, your daughter a large dowry, you don't have to worry that then the husband will inherit it and he will give it to his other other families. Uh, no, it, it will stay within your, even if your daughter dies, it will go to her sons, your grandchildren, so it will all stay in the family. Okay, Vad Kamma, how much should one give to one's daughters? Uh, up above we said it should be equivalent to what one's sons uh, um, acquire. Uh, in the inheritance, so Beirava said it should be up to a tenth of one's property. That's the the right amount to give ten uh, percent. I suppose it depends on how many daughters he has, how many sons he has, how much he has altogether. But that is an average amount. Okay, 
If the whole point of the takanab benin dikhrin is so that the father of the bride would give a large dowry, so then let the sons of the deceased of their deceased mother inherit only what the fa- the bride's father gave into the marriage, the avlerot, but whatever the husband promised in the ketubah, they should not inherit. What has nothing to do with the, with the father's dowry, uh, the amount that the husband said, I'll give you 200 zoos plus whatever he else, else he added in, what does that have to do with uh, in increasing the dowry? No, him can. If a husband is, uh, if a husband, what the husband promised is not going to go to his grandchildren, then he's not going to want to give it dowry either. He's going to say, this guy is not willing to take care of my grandchildren. Why should I take care of them? And so by it's kind of like matching funds. If the husband agrees uh, to give that, that amount to not only to the wife, but also to their sons, then the father of the bride will say, okay, I'm, I'll chip in a lot as well. Now, if the whole reason why the sons will inherit her sons will inherit whatever he pro- the husband promised in the ketubah is only so that the in, to encourage the father to give a big dowry. Then we should say in a case where the father has gives a dowry, then the husband also has to write that his ketubah will be given to the sons. But if the father does not write a dowry, then there's no need for the husband to write that whatever he was going to give to her will go to the sons. And it says, Lo The rabbis are not going to make a distinction between every single little case. Since most of the cases, a father does write a dowry. Therefore, that's the law in all cases, that whatever the husband is going to, was promised in the ketubah, also gets inherited by the sons of that marriage. But ben habanim nameh terut. Hold on. Now, um, if there are, uh, if this couple has only a daughter, and the father, the father has sons from other marriages, in that case, the law is that the sons inherit everything, and a daughter does not get the payout of a ketubah. This is called benin dikhirin. A daughter will get fed from the inheritance, but she does not inherit the ketubah. If the whole point is so that the father of the bride will know that it's kept in the family, so why not let it go to his granddaughter also? No, the rabbis, when they made this enactment, they made it using the similar uh, tools and language of an inheritance. And daughters don't inherit, so they can't get this ketubah payout. Now, what if the father has one daughter, but, and he has, he has no sons at all. He has a daughter from this marriage and other daughters. In that case, the, 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 since there are no sons, why not let this daughter, each of the daughters, will get the payout of the ketubah from their mothers. Instead, the law is that they all just share the inheritance equally. And here, lo pelug rabbanan, again, the rabbis are not going to make, uh, when to make a decree, they make it across the board, and they say, this works through inheritance, so if it's sons, then they get that special inheritance of their mother's ketubah, and it goes to sons, but if there's no sons, then they're not going to make a distinction between, uh, that make a, not make a distinction that daughters should get it, uh, so rather they, they're just treated as, 
uh, regular inheritors without without special inheritance of their mother's ketubah. If the point is that the amount that the father, the dowry goes to the grandsons, well, the father gave property, but he also gave items, jewelry, clothing, and those are movable items. Since the father gave movable items in the dowry, so then the son should also be able to collect movable items from the ketubah, but that's not the law. The law is that he, they, they um, collect only from land. And the answer is ketubah, They made it the same as the ketubah payout, which can be collected from land, but not from movable. So even though the reason originally is, uh, is, it would have to uh, uh, obligate movables, but since the mechanism that the rabbi used, used is, in, is ketubah, Inheritance, so therefore, has to follow the normal, the more normal rules of how a ketubah is collected. Titrof uh, Well, what about uh, land that the father had a lien? There was a lien on that land, and the father had sold in the meantime. How come the sons can't repossess that land? To for the payout of their mother's ketubah, and the answer is yirtun tenan. No, it says inherit. Uh, inheritors, uh, you know, sons who inherit cannot go and repossess land that the father had sold. They only get whatever land that the father has currently when he dies. Now there's another law that. The 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 sons can only get the payout of the ketubah if after that payout there'll still be at least a dinar left over in the property so that all the other sons can split it. If, they, by after the payout, there's not even a dinar left, uh, then the, the, the sons uh, of that mother cannot get the ketubah. Um, so why is that? If the whole point is that the father's uh, dowry should go to them, so it goes to them. Why does it matter if there's a dinar left over? Because the, the rabbis have to make sure that the basic doraita law is it will be fulfilled and the basic doraita law is that all the sons have to inherit so there has to be has to be something left over to fulfill the biblical inheritance law so yes the rabbi said in addition the because they also want to follow the pasuk in Yirmiyah, that they, and they want to encourage uh, big dowries by the by the fathers of the bride so then yes they can make an enactment in addition to the biblical law but they, they cannot replace the biblical law so therefore one only gets the payout of the benin dichrin if there is a dinar left over for, to fulfill the biblical law baruch adonai leolam amen ve'amen